Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello again. Actually, I'm assuming again, you may not have listened to this podcast before. And if you haven't, my name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and this is my time capsule, where I ask various guests to tell me the five things from their life that they would preserve in a time capsule. They can pick four things that they cherish, but they also pick one thing that they'd like to get rid of from their life, something they want to bury in the ground and never have to think about again. This is a special compilation episode from guests we've had on my time capsule in 2021. People such as Les Dennis, Tony Slattery, Katie Brand, Tim Vine, Josie Lawrence, Lisa Riley, Rob Bryden, and our first guest, who was actually our guest in our hundredth episode, is the wonderful Ross Noble. Okay, Ross, we're going to do my time capsule, 100th edition. And we're going to talk about five things from your life that you want to put into a time capsule. Yes. Now, you've heard this program, haven't you? I have, yes. I've listened to uh, quite a lot of them, yeah. And I realised that that quite quite a lot of people... um, I find it quite hard to be serious about stuff. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm not a very sentimental person. And also, the other thing is as well, like some people, I've, I've heard like some people put in like concepts and memories and things that remind them of, you know, special times in their lives and stuff. You've had a lot of people, I remember David Mitchell putting in a tie and things like that. Mm. Specific objects. It was quite hard for me because uh, basically... I lost everything I owned in a fire. My, I was, uh, I, I lived in a, I had a big bushfire come through, mm. and um, so everything I own is basically like eleven years old. <laughs> so, <laughs> so it's that thing of like, I don't, I don't really have anything from my, I don't have any like actual sentimental things from my childhood. Um, no, I mean, I do have, I do have this, which is, um, which my kids bought me uh, not so long ago, which is, uh, I don't know if you can see that. It's um, super supermodel telephone. <laughs> it's a telephone that's got a bra and pants on in it, in the shape of a supermodel. So yeah, so that was a that was a nice item because the, that's the, lovely. Yeah, well, of course, um, the wonder of this, the genius, I'm going to say, of yeah, this no, program, I'll give you that. Yeah, um, I, no, no reason why I shouldn't say that uh, is that we can find those things again oh, even course, if they're things that yes. have gone destroyed i can magic them up oh right okay and they go into the time capsule and then there they are saved oh right oh i never thought of that you can get things ah, ah all right i'm gonna need three hours thinking time <laughs> oh yeah, yeah yeah can i put my house my old house into the time capsule and then move back into it inside the time capsule. <laughs> I did think about as well, I did think about actually putting time capsules into the time capsule. To screw everybody up. No, 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 no. I know, I mean, like, because so, when I was a kid, I loved time capsules. You know, I used to do it all mm. the time. But we used to put things in that were stuff that was cut out from, like, Look In magazine. Yeah. And we'd put it in there and bury it in the garden. And it would just anger my dad, who was trying to, you know, he was trying to dig the flower beds, and he was just coming across biscuit tins full of shit. <laughs> so, but it would be quite nice because 
then people would go, oh, like the, the future civilizations will go, oh, let's have a look. Let's have a look inside this time capsule and open it up. And there'd be a time capsule inside the time capsule. And then you could just have smaller and smaller ones. Yes. But I decided against that because that would be stupid. <laughs> Ross Noble there. Our next guest is from episode 148, quite a recent episode. He's also a stand-up comedian. It's the brilliant Mark Steele. Because Kent's very peculiar, isn't it? Mm, as you yeah. Well, clearly, you know, right? Kent is a very strange... I always say people say it's the Garden of England, but they misunderstand that. They think of, ooh, the Garden of beautiful little rockeries and lovely dahlias, but it's not. It's a garden with an upturned pram in it and a <laughs> tyre swinging about and the dog's done a mess. But there's pretty bits as well. So as you go through Kent... It just, every bit of it, you think, what's like an odd dream? What's that doing there? There's a quarry and then a beautiful orchard and then an oast house mm. and then a disused mine <laughs> and then Romney Marshes, which is just looks like the sort of place where every 50 yards you're going to find a, a corpse that has never been discovered. And <laughs> it's really mad. I mean, Dimcher, Romney Island Dimchurch <laughs> Railway, the miniature railway, the greatest tourist attraction in the world. Far, far, far better than the pyramids and the Taj Mahal because <laughs> you get on a hive. I mean, I presume you're familiar with the Robbie Hyde. I am, yes, yeah. It's a tiny, 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 tiny railway. You squeeze in and you just about get in. But it's wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. It's been going since about the 20s, I think. Mm -hmm. And you get on a hive and there's a sort of lovely local volunteer and he clips your ticket. There you go. Enjoy your trip. And tourists must think, oh, this is wonderful. We're going to go through some delightful little villages <laughs> and we'll probably stop somewhere and have a picnic on a lace tablecloth with lovely chutney. And then it'll probably end up at a wonderful destination where there's just the most delightful vistas and then 10 minutes later you're going through Dimchurch and it goes through back gardens doesn't it and people are waving and that you know and then a bloke with Union Jack shorts and no top and a big sunburned stomach looks back what you fucking waving at <laughs> and then think, oh I'm sure at the end it's the most glorious glorious destiny we must end up at some wonderful stately home and we all buy honey and instead it goes just into this massive sort of field of pebbles with just higgledy-piggledy houses plonked around it and hurtles towards the Dungeness power station. <laughs> and it just hurtles towards it and tourists will say, oh my God, no, this is how they get electricity in Kent. They burn tourists. We're just going straight into the of this thing. And this thing's going, ah. You either think, oh my God, we've got to get out of this sinister place or... If you're like me, you just think this is absolutely beautiful. And uh, yeah, I try to go every year. I've not been the last couple of years for obvious reasons, but I love it there. Right, let's go back to earlier in 2021 and episode 86, which featured the actor and host of Would I Lie to You, Rob Bryden. Well, so we shall put the South Island of New Zealand, Lake Wanaka, yeah. into the yeah. time capsule. That's your first item, Rob. Okay, okay, lovely. So what's number two? Well, this is a thing. And this is, I have downstairs here in, in our house, I have a vintage 1957 jukebox. Uh, oh. It's an AMI something. <laughs> it's flown away now. <laughs> and... It is from 1957, the year that Jailhouse Rock, as I'm sure you are aware, came out. Mm. And um, this one was found in California and bought by a dealer and then restored. I mean, a lot of it is original. I think it's the original valve or valves in the speaker. It's yeah. a big mono speaker in there. And then it's brought back to Britain and, and finished off. And, and I had it for my 50th birthday. Brilliant. And it's got a wonderful sound to it because it's mono, particularly with songs from the 50s. So, for example, a lot of those, are, I love Elvis, a lot of those old Elvis singles. So what you do is, I'm surprised when I talk to people about the jukebox, they, how often they, they don't understand it and they'll say, oh, so can you... 
can you choose which records to have on it? And you say, well, yes, of course you can. Mm-hmm. Oh, and are they actual records? Well, yes, they're records. And once you put them on, can you change them? Well, yes, of course you can. <laughs> and, and that was when, when we got it, part of the great joy of it was sourcing these old original singles and trying yeah. to get them in the best condition. Um, so a song, for example, like Are You Lonesome Tonight?, If you listen to that on your normal system at home, a lot of people now have these speakers, you know, and then it's all digital, isn't it? And it sounds just fine. Mm -hmm. But if you then listen to Are You Lonesome Tonight on this jukebox, Elvis's voice is way out front. It's all mono. It's all compact. It's a totally different listening experience. It's as it was meant to be, you know. Mm. And it's fantastic. And, and it's a, there's a joy to going up to it, choosing what you want and going, you have to press as like A16 or something. So you go, yeah. and it's a, it's, a, it's a big, you know, buttony switch thing. And then, and then you hear, and then, and then the two things come back up, the two things you pressed on, like that. And then, and then, and then up it comes, down, the arm comes across and they mute the sound initially. Then the sound comes up. So if it's a bit crackly, you get, and then do, 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 are you lost? And it, and it goes into that. Brilliant. So it's so, it, it, it's calming because it slows you down uh, to do it. Mm-hmm. So what I would do is I would have that jukebox, but I would have if this is allowed, an endless supply of singles. Rob Bryden there, bending the rules somewhat. But who cares? Right, next is another stand-up comedian. From episode 136 of my time capsule, it's the very funny Chaparak Gorsandi. We went to the Tower of London. Uh, There's a comic called Tom Houghton who lives there. Mm -hmm. Um because his dad's like the king of the army or something. <laughs> he lives in the Tower of London and uh, he invited, I don't know if he invited us or we invited ourselves, but me and the kids went and spent some time with him there. And it's so amazing to actually be inside one of the flats that people live in. Wow, that's amazing. Is his dad a beef eater or something? No, his dad is like the head of the English army. <laughs> And, like, you know, there'll be a portrait of him up on the wall after his tenure's over. His dining room is where Guy Fawkes was tortured. And he showed my children a picture of Guy Fawkes' signature before and after the torture. It was was quite the day out. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, he never has to lock his front door because there's always an armed guard outside it. Of course. Yeah, you'd be tempted to shoo the ravens away, though, to bring down the British Empire or wherever it is. Yes, that was it, wasn't it? And, and you know, he said it's really tough when he has to order Deliveroo. <laughs> and like, what do you mean the Tower of London? No, in the Tower of London. like in Bang on a big knocker. Somebody will open it, yeah. And like, he told us, like, as we went in the gate, where they used to trap the enemy and pour hot oil on them. What a Saturday night that was. <laughs> Of course, not everybody's been a stand-up comedian. Well, me, for a start. Episode 116 featured the writer of Spitting Image, the smash hit novel Things Can Only Get Better, and now the writer of the new hit on Broadway, Mrs Doubtfire the Musical. Here, talking about his extraordinary bum, is John O'Farrell. What's your first item? Well, um, this is not insignificant to me, and people will understand that it's not insignificant in anyone's case, but I would like to put in my mum into the time capsule. <laughs> She's not with us anymore, but mm. she just would uh, be there for everyone's entertainment. She was a very, very larger-than-life character. I think probably the only person in medical history to have a hip replacement and then ask the doctor if she could take the old bone home for the dog. <laughs> and she was like, I was like, Mum, you can't do that. She goes, well, it's such a waste. Could have made a nice stock with that. <laughs> she, she, grew up, she grew up in the war in times of, you know, food shortages. didn't like to waste anything. So would yeah. squeeze the oil out of a tin of tuna to save the oil so that anything she fried tasted of tuna and <laughs> use stale bread. 
to make stale toast. But um, no, yeah, mum's hip bone and country vegetable could be a soup. Uh, <laughs> so Joy was her name and um, she was just, you know how parents are embarrassing. She's sort of embarrassing, sort of squared, mm. always sort of outrageous and inappropriate. She was a quite a posh lady uh, who married a sort of working class Irishman. So that was an interesting combination. <laughs> Every summer she would clean out the garden pond just by stripping down to her knickers and doing it topless in the mud. And uh, one year my <laughs> friends came round and there was Joy, aged probably, you know, in a, however old she was. She was a large woman, my mother, uh, mm. looking like the wild women of Wonga, her breasts <laughs> covered in mud. And my friends going, oh, I'm so far. It's John in. <laughs> and uh, it was the talk of the school, as you can imagine. Just hold my tadpoles. <laughs> yes, it was. God, bloody hell, John, your mum's knockers are enormous. It's like, I don't want to talk about that in history. No. <laughs> um, what did she do, John? She had met my dad at a thing called... Um, a World Friendship Association, which after the war brought orphaned refugees over to the UK for holidays. Oh. Then they had a cafe together in in, in Muswell Hill. And then um, she brought us up, but she got a job at the hospital in Cliveden near Maidenhead and she worked there for a bit. But she uh, became a, quite an activist. She was quite a sort of political activist. She was, um, it was that amazing combination of being left-wing and posh. So she used to drive her cooking that she did for the Greenham Peace Women, she'd mm. drive to Greenham and say, right now, so you must open these in the right order. This one's got fresh cream in. It's, a, it's got volivants. The volivants are in that one, dear. And, um, and these women in woolly hats and sort of fingerless gloves have this. Um, now, this is a Simon on Crute. Um, now, probably best steamed, but... And, and, and they've got an open fire. Yeah, exactly. They were sort of, you know, uh, gnawing on bits of bone around the fire or whatever. <laughs> not hip bone. No, no, probably not. But she, um, yeah, so she was very active in um, Amnesty International. She would write up the minutes. She was slightly nuts, actually. I mean, you know, um, hilarious, but nuts. She would write up the minutes for Amnesty, but always wanted to put jokes in them to make them more entertaining. And no one in, in the Cookham Village Amnesty would go, can you just write a record? of the meeting um she'd say to me i spent the whole weekend trying to make them funny there's no point it's just the minutes of the meeting oh well i like to make it entertaining for everyone uh-huh. um so she was fantastically she was all in a hurry she was getting done for speeding she got done for speeding on the way to her speed awareness course which I thought, <laughs> <laughs> um, um so we'd park anywhere you know she's like oh that's the estate agent private parking she'd park diagonally across this space you know yes. like someone from ab fab <laughs> but she was a great mum because she was funny and outrageous and i was like uh saffy and ab fab you know mm. going mum you can't do that you know while yeah. she was rubbing the arm of the security man go you don't mind me going through this door that says private do you we'll just go through this way it's much quicker dear <laughs> so yeah so my mum i think would uh, would entertain people in the, oh yeah uh, what a gift you're giving to the world yes i think so she always took her dog everywhere with her so she had a a golden retriever called fudge and um she'd go down <laughs> kenston high street and um uh, always would think oh i'll do the shopping but i don't want to leave it tied up outside the shop so i'll put it in the bank so she went into the bank and tied the dog up inside you know the bit where you sit down and write your checks out and of course she was late and the bank closed and it's like, is this you who's bringing your dog every day? The manager was waiting outside with this golden <laughs> retriever. And, oh, well, I thought it like thought to him, I just left it there whilst I was doing the shopping. Well, can you not? So, so then, so then she goes, oh, I've got to take it inside the shop now. So she approaches Marks and Spencers, and there's a big sign saying no dogs except guide dogs. Mm. So she thinks, oh, well, I've got my swimming goggles in my handbag. So she puts on her swimming goggles and gropes her way into Marks and Spencer's and fudge hits the slippery floor lies on her back. She hates the slippery floor. So she's trying to drag Fudge across this apparent guide dog, trying to drag yeah. it across while lifting up her speed goggles, going, come on, Fudge, come on. And the manager comes across and says, Madam, you are aware you're not allowed to have dogs in. Oh, I thought guide dogs were accepted. Madam, you're wearing swimming goggles. <laughs> and just, this is my childhood, you know, regular occurrences in my childhood. John O'Farrell and his amazing mum. In October, in episode 138, the actor Patterson Joseph was my guest. He's an extraordinary actor who jumps from comedies like Inside Number 9 and Peep Show to the recent drama Vigil. Anyway, here he is now. So let's move on to item number two. Item number two, it's uh, a song by um, an artist called Prince Allah, A-double-L-A, and it's called Bucket Bottom. Uh, and no, it's not rude. 
It's um, <laughs> it's literally about the bottom of a bucket. It's a reggae song, but it's a sort of set set of Jamaican aphorisms and wise uh, sayings. And there's something about the reggae that I listened to that I want to sort of encapsulate or sort of hold. And that is the education mm. that I got through it. The moral education, things you did, uh, the education about how black people were treated in the past, mm. uh, education about how women uh, dealt with life, about the reliance on women in, in Caribbean culture, uh, obviously sex, uh, <laughs> definitely violence, and a lot of my education was through reggae. Songs that I, I heard, artists that I listened to, Iroy, Dennis Brown, uh, a little later, Beres Hammond. These writers were, and, and singers were not just writing lovely tunes, and they were. They were also singing about their faith. Mm -hmm. They were singing about their political uh, aspirations. And if you can think about that kind of music, I know it's a, it's a very sort of standard thing to go to Bob Marley, but if you think about him, he was a teacher. That's what he did. His songs are teaching you, No Woman, No Cry, it talks about the emotions of, of women. It, you know, it's a man singing, but he, he, wants, he wants you to, to, to tune in to women and women's emotions. There's songs of, of, you know, love and, you know, stir it up. and Stir it up is, is, is all about that, you know, physical mm -hmm. love. But there's, there's also redemption song. You know, there's songs that teach mm. you, literally teach you about uh, African-Caribbean history. And, and that it was a large part of my education as a black person who was getting none of that at school. I got none, no, no education. I didn't know who Marcus Garvey was. I didn't know what the Black Star Line was. I didn't know about this Back to Africa movement. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anything until I was, I'd left, long left school and started uh, doing research for you know, plays and things. And I started to dig mm. into Malcolm X and really found out what Martin Luther King was about. So my education before that was, was you know, sit, standing in a club, you know, in a darkened club somewhere, uh, <laughs> you know, listening to this music. In November, in episode 140, I spoke to the gorgeous stand-up comedian, Josie Long, who happens to have been brought up about 150 yards from where I was dragged up. Although you'll have to listen to the episode to hear about that. Anyway, here she is talking about doing The Island with Bear Grylls. I'll show you my last item. This is a very beautiful brown and purple shell. Mm. And the very fact that I have it is bad because I did um, a reality television show for Bear Grylls where you get left on an island for two weeks yeah. and you have to survive on it. But I did it for charity, which I feel balances out the decadence of people who have no problems having food being like what's it like to starve you know which feels a bit i don't know a bit tacky but um did it for charity didn't receive money hands are clean yeah except you were 100 percent not allowed to take anything off the island because it was a nature reserve in panama but i did take this one beautiful purple shell to remind me of it so i do i would like to apologize to the nation of panama <laughs> Um, and indeed to the production company because I shouldn't have done it. But I put it in there because, well, partly if I put it in the time capsule, victimless crime. And no evidence. They won't know where it is. They can't dig it up. No. It's fine. Exactly. And I, what I do is I'll wipe it with a wipe before I put it in so there's none of my fingerprints in it. <laughs> no DNA. <laughs> no, no DNA. Then they'll, they'll be like, well, we can't connect it to her. <laughs> so what was it like then, being on this island? It was a really, uh, for me personally, the only way I found it challenging was emotionally because I think I went into it with this very utopian idealism with which I approach everything in my life where I was like, we'll all be best friends, we'll be a model community, this is going to be amazing. I thought it would be challenging physically or even kind of mentally and those weren't the problem. So I found it to be an incredibly beautiful experience and I actually oddly felt mentally very alert and very good because I think I wasn't eating any junk food and I was sleeping outside and maybe oh yeah well so I have ADHD which is why I jump around from topic to topic and um when I found out I found out that ADHD people would be excellent hunter-gatherers because they're very alert and fast and, and sort of fit in quite well to the um, natural world. Mm -hmm. And so 
I then like to extrapolate now and be like, oh, that's why I found it really great. My brain was sharp. I was sleeping on the ground. But the main reason was I had two weeks where I didn't have my phone. I wasn't in contact with the world. I was just in this very beautiful place that felt very calm and quiet. And every night I could go to sleep and watch this uh, like embroidery of stars just gather and then gently go across the sky and there were shooting stars and mm. it was so stunning and I've never seen that much uh, in the sky with the naked eye ever because of light pollution and yeah. and like swimming in a tropical ocean every day. Like for me, it was absolute paradise, drinking coconut water. I mean, admittedly that is basically all we had, but <laughs> I really love coconut water, so it's not a problem. So that part of it I found really good and it was... I like cold water swimming a lot um, and I go on about it a lot. And similarly with this, where having fat around your middle is a real advantage <laughs> and haven't been told my whole life that this is bad and that I should hate myself and hate it. It was kind of amazing to be on this thing with like a very nice athlete who after three days couldn't tolerate it anymore because he had no more body fat. Mm. Whereas I was like, this is keeping me alive for weeks. <laughs> and, and it was it was really wonderful to be like, wow, my body shape is an advantage in this. And in fact, if you look at all people from those sort of communities, that is the shape of people. Wow. See, I was born to live on a beautiful island. Right. Time for a short ad break now, but we'll be back with you very soon. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Welcome back to the best of my time capsule 2021. Here's an extract from episode 94, which featured the actor and presenter, Les Dennis. She just never stopped talking about this night with Sammy Davis Jr. and how he had, he'd, he'd had um, uh, guns in holsters and he'd done this whole kind of gunslinger routine and his tap dancing and his amazing crooning um, and just a great showman. And mm. also his impressions. She kept going on about his impressions. And she brought this EP that I put on. And I then I was playing it every day. It was um, him doing singing impressions. People like Mel Torme, uh, Mario Lanza. Um, wow. He did a version of Sonny Boy, Climb Upon My Knee, Sonny Boy, doing Jimmy Cagney and um, Jimmy Stewart and, and all these great film stars. And that was kind of like, I thought, wow, I just i am obsessed with this. The, the idea that this guy becomes these other people so well. So that's how I started my act. I kind of collated his stuff along with maybe um, impressions of Freddie Parrott Face Davis. <laughs> and Steptoe and Son at that time, I put together a little act and, and went round um, charity shows. My mum took me. So I started with this Sammy Davis Jr. impersonations and did the talent competition when we went to Butlins. We used to go to Patheli in North Wales 
for one week a year. And one year, when I was 14, uh, we decided to go to Filey because Patelli seemed to be too competitive. Everybody, you know, the talent competition at Butlins was, when it got to the adult talent competition, it was quite massive. It was, um, it was the People National Talent Competition. And the prize was to get to the Palladium, and then it was £1,000. That was a lot of money. In the, it'd be about 68, 1968. I went on in Filey, and I was 14, and I was, I was just eligible for the adult talent competition. And I won the weekly heat. I beat all these people who were in their 20s and 30s, all these <laughs> bands and, and, and great singers doing um, Sammy Davis Jr., doing Jerry Lewis singing Lulu's Back in Town. Gotta get my old tuxedo pressed. Gotta sew a button <laughs> on my vest. And, you know, and, 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 and Jimmy Stewart, oh, well, well, when you're old and gray, dear, well, well, would you promise that you'll, you'll never stray, dear? Because, I mean, I, I got to have somebody. And I got you, <laughs> sonny boy. And I, I, just, I just listened and listened. And, and I won the heat and went back for the, um, the free week, which was amazing at the end of the holiday. My mum had to come with me then. But as I got older, I used to go on my own for that because I used to then every year, that was my goal to go into the talent competition. And one year I was in it with a double act called the Harper Brothers who went on to be Cannon and Ball. <laughs> and, and we both lost. So, you know, so that was my beginning. And, and, and I think it conjures up for me that, if I listen to that Sammy Davis EP, it conjures up for me all the wonderful things that my mum did for me to kind of to get me into the business. She was she was my inspiration, really. She kind of she was a showbiz mother, but she wasn't like a pushy showbiz mother. She nurtured and saw that I wanted to do it. And she encouraged me right through. And she I mean, she died in 1977. She she didn't see any of the stuff, really. But she kind of. In her heart, she knew I was going to be okay. She kind of really knew it. And she kind of, she wasn't a snob. We were working class, but she wanted us to do better. And she got us out of a prefab in, in Speak. And she got us into a council house in Childwall, which was, was quite posh for us. And she got herself a little money box. And she called it Mum's Car Box. And we all laughed because she was saving up for a car. But she saved pennies and sixpences and eventually got a car. And, and that car was the car that drove me around the working men's clubs and helped me start in this business. So that beginning, you know, that mm. nurturing by my mum and that finding that little thing, that EP was something that set me on a road. Now, in September, in episode 126 of my time capsule, I spoke to a man who became famous through Whose Line Is It Anyway, but then rather disappeared from our screens. But here I talk about his early days at Cambridge University. It's the lovely Tony Slattery. We have to talk about your time at Cambridge because it's just such a defining thing for you, isn't it? I mean, it's where your life, I suppose, the direction of your life was sort of set. You're a linguist. Was your intention to go there and then work in the foreign office? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think in the beginning, I just enjoyed languages. And I think a bit of me in my dreams, wanted to be a crusty old don with the keys to the port cellar. <laughs> and uh, then I got uh, sidelined by performing. Mm. And so I got a 2 2 in the end, but I really enjoyed it. I mean, Eva Thompson and Stephen Fry and Hugh Laurie and uh, these brilliant people. And, and I learned so much from them. And uh, they were so kind to this, you know, <laughs> uh, short, sturdy whippersnapper who could be funny and um, they're all poshies. Well, yes. Now, there's an interesting thing, isn't it? Did you go there thinking, they're never going to let me in? Not really. Uh there was a bit of that, but I also thought when I first visited Cambridge, which was just on a school trip, mm. it was like Disneyland in a way. I was 14 and I thought, oh my God, look at the beauty of this place. And that's what drove me. It was principally the architecture. Mm. 
I can understand that that would make you fall in love with the place and think, right, okay. I'm... Yes. And that put the seed in your mind. Yes, it did. Oh, yes, really? it did. And that's why I dropped sport and started to, hmm, A-levels and then entrance exams, then lots of interviews with really crusty <laughs> professors in very dark rooms, some with candles <laughs> firing nasty questions at me. <laughs> So having made your mind up that that was the, the thing, did you have to ask your school, can I take the entrance exam? Oh, yes. Wow. Did you have to stay on at school to do that? Yes. And I did some of it pretty well, but a couple of them, now, this sticks in my mind. A couple of them, I just got so wrong. And uh, <laughs> so in the interviews where... Uh, the uh, dons of the professors in the various interviews kept turning lights on <laughs> because I couldn't translate something. Mm. And then when I got something, they said, well, these are clear scholarship marks, but in this paper, you're dismal. <laughs> How do you explain this discrepancy? And all, all I thought of was the truth. I was having an affair with a math teacher. <laughs> Tony Slattery there. Right, let's hear from Katie Brand from episode 102 of my time capsule, talking about something from her youth that she wanted to put in her time capsule. It was my 40th birthday a couple of years ago and my husband said on my birthday itself, which was a sort of boring weekday, sort of like, oh, let's not get a babysitter, let's do something nice another weekend sort of birthday, even though it was my 40th. Um, and so he said, what do you want to do? So I said, oh, well, we'll just get, let's have some nice food and a bottle of champagne. And, and then I don't know. And then I suddenly had this notion out of nowhere that I suddenly thought... I want to watch Dirty Dancing. <laughs> and he went, okay. And he went with it. It was my 40th birthday. He wasn't going to argue. Uh, and so we found it and we sat and watched it. And I thought, I haven't actually watched this film all the way through properly, sat down deliberately to watch it from start to finish since I was a teenager. Mm. And I was really obsessed with it as a teenager and completely obsessed with it from the first time I saw it, really, when I was about 11 on the TV, it came out on the TV. And it just absolutely knocked me off my feet, this film, at that time. And I sort of went to bed completely buzzing, just thinking, what have I just seen? My life will never be the same again, you know, in that sort of 11-year-old <laughs> way. Yeah. Uh, and then after that, I didn't get to watch it again for a while because that was the way of it, wasn't it, at that mm. time? You know, you couldn't just download it from a streamer just because you say to your husband, let's watch this tonight. Um, <laughs> so I had to wait till it came back round on TV again and I was ready for it. I recorded it onto a VHS. I wrote Dirty Dancing Do Not Wipe on it in <laughs> thick black letters on the label and then I watched it every day for three months um and uh, from start to finish after school or at weekends and then my dad confiscated the VHS and he <laughs> he hid it because I think they were, he was a bit worried that this was getting a bit too obsessive or that you know I wasn't doing my homework and things anyway I conducted a thorough search I found it uh, I proceeded to continue to watch it every day after school without them knowing and I would put it back in the hiding place <laughs> and so it was a real consuming sort of obsession that I had with Dirty Dancing. And so when it came to my 40th birthday, it was like this weird moment where I suddenly thought, I want to sort of look back over my life through the prism of Dirty Dancing and see if it still stands up, see if I love it as much, see what's really in there. It's still a successful film, so there must be something going on with it. Mm. And it, as I sat and watched it, I just thought, oh my God, this is every bit as good as I remember it. And, and it's doing the same thing to me as it did when I was a teenager, which made me feel kind of optimistic and excited about life and invincible and wanting to try new things and have an adventure. And I felt all those things again when I was 40. And I again went to bed sort of buzzing. So what I think I'm trying to say is that I rediscovered this thing that sort of can be a bit dismissed as frivolous and a bit silly and a bit trivial, like a lot of things actually that girls like, sometimes that happens. I thought, does this stand up as a piece of filmmaking? That's what actually I found quite interesting because 
It really does. And I think so much stuff that girls get into is dismissed as something that's a bit silly. Whereas boys' things are kind of big and important and about serious themes and good and evil and Star Wars and and all the (laughs) girls' films are just about dancing and sort of, you know, getting a nice boyfriend. So Mm. whereas there can be quite big themes tucked into those sorts of films, as there are with any film. And I also think that if something endures for 30 years like that has, then there's something else going on. And I think that there's something that's worth looking at. And as I watched it, I I paused it at 30 minutes and I just looked at my husband. I went, the pace of this thing is unbelievable. It's so tight. They've just delivered every setup of the story, like in this incredible way which then it means you can have slower paced scenes later on and I I just think the whole package of the film is just a genuinely brilliant film the script is great the dancing is amazing the chemistry is just once in a generation between Patrick Swayze and Jennifer Grey and it's got all these messages for teenagers not just girls about you know grabbing hold of your life and going out there and getting you know, learning something new. It's about first sexual experiences and how they can be built on trust and friendship and working together for a common goal. And, you know, it's got things about class in it. It's got things about father-daughter relationships. It's it's genuinely just packed full of this stuff. And then on top of all that, there's the whole issue of illegal termination of a pregnancy. That That's like a whole thing people just forget that's even in there. <laughs> but there's this huge kind of feminist storyline about the need for safe abortions and things like that. So it's just actually quite an extraordinary piece of filmmaking. And I I just had this feeling of like, this needs to be looked at again. This needs to be looked at properly. And I just had this avalanche of a response from people about it afterwards. Lots of women, obviously, but some men as well. But just women of my age, particularly, just saying, God, actually, now I think about it, that that really did have a big impact on me. And obviously the dancing's incredible. Mm. And that helps. And Patrick Swayze is gorgeous. And Patrick Swayze is gorgeous and lovely. He's this kind of gentle sort of Texan, cowboy come ballet dancer you know and that was all in him anyway as a man yeah you know everyone talked about this sort of incredible quality he had in that way he could be quite sincere and innocent and sort of sexual at the same time and you know Mm. they just put a package together and I think that's why I was writing the book I was having fun with sort of silly stories about my life and when all the times I've been an absolute dick sort of thing (laughs) but uh, in the book there's a lot of that there's a lot of source material for that but just analysing the film and how you make a film that is more than a script it's more than a star it's more than anything and just sometimes even though they were all quite rookie filmmakers just something comes together and it just works and it just is golden. And I think this film deserves a place, a proper place in sort of the cultural landscape. Katie Brand makes you want to watch it again, doesn't it? OK, now it's time for episode 82 and a man who's famous for his one-liners. Although in this extract, he talks rather beautifully about his dad. Here's Tim Vine. Well, number two is in relation to my father. Now, my father, who died um, about two and a half years ago, he lectured at uh, a polytechnic and he lectured in structural engineering and also maths. And he was very into maths, particularly prime numbers. This became a slight obsession with him, prime numbers. Not only that, one of the great mysteries in maths is the pattern of the prime numbers. As you know, nobody to this day has found there is any pattern to them at all. My dad believed that he found the pattern. Brilliant. And he wrote a book, which was slightly sort of uh, vanity publishing, The Pattern of the Primes by Guy Vine. He wrote this book, which uh, I think they print on demand on Amazon somewhere. And uh, he often tells people how this sort of came to him suddenly. He was thinking about prime numbers and he was picking me up from school as it happens. And uh, he suddenly realised he was onto something. I got into the car and he excitedly told me, Tim, I've got it. You know, it's all this. And I'll just read you this tiny bit at the, at the, at the end of the preface. I shall, it's just this, this reads like it's Faraday. This is not somebody. <laughs> and bear, bear in mind, everyone who read this, who were uh, mathematicians, didn't think he was really onto anything. I mean, I'm trying to assume that maybe he was, and the time capsule, you know, later in time, it'll be dug up and someone will go, look, he had something, you know. It's going to be Fermat's last theorem. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, yeah. He, and he loved that yeah. as well. He, he, yeah. Um, this, as I say, this it, it, deliberately dramatic. This is from my dad. I shall always remember with gratitude to God the early evening of Thursday, the second of December, nineteen eighty-two. 
I was waiting to pick up my son from school, that's me, and was using the time as usual to think about the prize. Suddenly, I noticed something, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> that's the... <laughs> <laughs> Read that on. How, exactly. And uh, <laughs> so, and he's inscribed at the front, to, to Tim, here it is, this is your copy. I hope you find the second page as funny as the first, would love that. So, so I mean, I, I, uh. I'm very, very close to my dad, and he, he sort of introduced me to Bill Coe and, you know, comedy generally. <laughs> Had a great sense of humour. Not introduced in real, not in real life, Phil Silvers. I mean, the program. Into the program. Hi, <laughs> um, uh, Jim. This is Phil Silver. He's come around for a cup of tea. Yes, exactly. Here he is. You know, so my sort of a lot of my early uh, comedy uh, education came from my dad. Um, so this thing here, the pattern of the primes. I think, and I'm holding on to the possibility that he really was onto something, and I'd like that to go into the uh, time capsule for uh, and see whether or not in the future. Uh, it is the case that he discovered the pattern of the primes. The pattern of the primes. Brilliant. I never know what we're going to talk about on My Time Capsule. For example, here's me and Josie Lawrence in episode 91 of My Time Capsule talking about mathematics. i tell you what I would like to put into um, to this time capsule and never see again. And this is purely a personal thing, so nobody writing, getting all... Because I know there's that lovely man, Marcus de Soto, who I've worked with. There's, there's people in my family that love it. And I know it also makes the world go round in lots of ways because everybody needs to count. But I want to put in mathematics. <laughs> it's been the bane of your life, is it? The bane. <laughs> the ba- I think I, there is an equivalent, isn't there, to... Um, so you're sort of numerically dyslexic. It feels like I am. Mm. I mean, and I try very hard. I remember it started at primary school. We would do the mathematics and we'd do the times table. And it would make me go shuddery. Mm. Just just anything to do with it. I can sort of, to this day, I can sort of do something if it's tens or fives, I think. I still have to use my fingers. But I would, uh, you know, they'd go uh, uh, two, two to four. Da, four da, 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 <laughs> you da, run da, out already. Well, I'd just mine. Oh. I'd go, blah, 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 blah. now we do the nine times table, children. Well, nine is nine. Eighteen, is it? And I'd just sort of move my mouth up and down. And, and just hated it. I didn't, didn't know what it was about it. I just, I just, just wanted to, to dance. No, I just, <laughs> I just wanted to act. Uh, the first improv I ever did was uh, Pied Piper, and because I had a recorder, and and all my mates were like the mayor of the town and all that, and all the lads were rats, and and. Um, I, I told them to hide under the desks on their hands and knees and to crawl out after me when I told them to. And that's been my relationship with them as well. So, you know, a lot of things happen in primary school. Um, crawl after me. Um, <laughs> when I say. When I say, when I toot my horn. Uh, so I never liked it. Mathematics was the bane of my life. Yeah. It does give you a sign of what education was like, though, that they just went, well, just learn it. Just do it, rather than well, they, this child's obviously having problems. They, they were lovely teachers. There were a lot of us. I don't want to badmouth my teachers, no. really, Michael. It, it wasn't that. It was, I think people have things they like and things they don't like. And I probably hid very well the fact that I didn't like it, you see, mm. by miming. And stuff. <laughs> but then when I wrote it down, just hopeless. And then, um, because I was... I liked acting. I remember there was a maths test and uh, I got ill the night before and then mum realised that uh, that I'd missed the maths test and, mm. and I'd been putting it on. So that was naughty of me. But I thought I'd got out of it and I went to school the next day and my teacher said, um, right, everybody go out in the playground now apart from you. Wendy, if you go to the hall, there's the desk in your maths test waiting for you. Oh, Lord. I remember it like it was yesterday. This desk and this sort of little blackboard and the test papers. And, oh, bloody hell. It was like looking at 
dancing twigs <laughs> in the white background. It meant nothing. And then and he and he was lovely, my teacher actually. I mean, he said, "What you stuck on?" And I went six, six times table. And he goes, "Which one?" I said, six sixes." And he wrote it on the board, and he put six sixes. What do you think then? What do you think? I said, I don't know. I just don't know. And he went, six sixes at 36. Say it. Six sixes at 36. Six sixes at 36. So that was it. Unbeknownst to me, some of the kids, especially the lads, had been listening in through the windows and that at playtime. And when I went into the playground... Old gang of them going, six, six is a 36, six, six is a 36. So to this day, I know. Six, sixes. What six, sixes. Mm. They're they're, they're 36. In my experience, mathematics is a different world to everybody who approaches it. Because I've discussed how I do maths. Do you like it? I like maths. I really like maths and I like mental arithmetic, which is a different thing to maths, really. Uh, Because I can sort of see it in my head. Mm. And I have methods of how numbers, how they relate to each other. So, for example, when you say six, six is a 36, I immediately think three is half of six. It's a reminder of why it's 36. So those things occur to me all the time. Yes, but you have to know it's 36 before you realise it's half of six. Yeah, but, uh, you know... I know that 10 sixes are 60, and half of 60 would be 5 sixes, which is 30. And if you add another one, it's 36, so that's 6 sixes. Well, that's good, yes. You see, if somebody, if I say 7 times 8... Mm-hmm. Well, 7 sevens are 49, I know that, because you know all the 7 sevens are 5 fives, 7 sevens are 49. I should have taunted you in the playground. Seven, seven sevens are 49. Seven sevens are 49. <laughs> see, I can't see it. So I can't see if it. If you add 7 to that... Makes 56. Can't see it. You I can't, can't see, see it. it. It's weird. So eight sevens are 56. See, I can't see it. Somebody's going to write in and say, you're completely wrong, Mike. <laughs> <laughs> and here's another example of how I can be taken by surprise by the things that people choose to put in the time capsule. My guest in episode 142 was the lovely Lisa Riley, full of fun and a joy for living, as we've all seen many times. But here, she talked to me about her mum. Be prepared to get some tissues out. Okay, we should put your gorgeous dresses from Strictly Come Dancing into the time capsule as your first item. Thank you so much. Okay, let's have a look at number two. Okay, I don't want to be dour or to upset anybody. I just want to tell the truth, Mike. Mm -hmm. Um, Now, I promise myself, if I get emotional, it's who I am. I'm a Cancerian through and through, and it's it's me, and they come from such a wonderful place, but then it proves the heart of my mum. So I couldn't choose one item. It has to be two because they are woven. So it's the bunch of, which are now dried yellow roses, which is on top of mum's casket Mm. with my locket, the last locket she bought for me um, on the back of it, which, um, which says in my daughter's eyes, which is a stunning ballad by Martina McBride, which became mine and my mum's anthem of life. And if any mother in the world wants to send their child a gift, type the lyrics of Martina McBride's song in my daughter's eyes, because you talk about power of music, power of lyric, power of melody. Mm. That literally weaves so beautifully together. The the flowers, the yellow rose has forever been my favourite flower. Everybody that knows me and loves me knows that my house is full of yellow roses and it's my love, it's the brightness. People say it's mum's personality. You know, people think I'm confident. You know, my mum was like three of me when it comes to confidence. <laughs> she she filled a room, Mike, you know. Everywhere mm. she went, you, you always remembered Kath Riley. Damn. And... She was with me for everything, everything in my life, everything in my career. And again, back to what I was saying, not not that pushy mother, the support, the shoulder, just being at the end of a phone and and knowing that that they're there and to never judge me, to never make the wrong sort of opinion would always be like, you know, you've got to make mistakes, darling, to, to pull your socks up, scuff your knee and keep going. And I always believed she was going to be there. 
I never thought for one minute that the angels would take my mum so soon. And I'll never forget um, when she first got diagnosed with stage four breast cancer. I was always filming up in Yorkshire at the time, but we always made time as the family and Friday night was meal night. And we would always get together, have beautiful meals and go to the Italian or to the Thai restaurant the specific night. I was dashing back over from Yorkshire on the M62 and I got to mum and dad's house and mum was in the shower. She's like, I won't be long, dad, I won't be long. And she came out of the shower and the towel just dropped. And I saw of the areoli, which was like the inversion and I was like, mum, that's, what's that? What's that? Oh, she's like, oh, darling, don't make a fuss. Don't make a fuss. I was like, no, no, what is that? That's, that's not right. That was the Friday. By the Monday morning, I had her in with Mr. D'Souza, who was the local breast specialist, you know, and he was incredible. The results that had been told and you read people. And I was in there with mum and I knew, I knew instantly. I know doctors have to act sometimes in their lifetime. Mm. He couldn't act this one. Um, and they got her in and she had... Instantly, you know, so you knew the severity of the speed as well. And um, yeah, they got her in and she had the full mastectomy, all her lymph nodes removed. And it was it was at that point when everyone was saying, like, are you ready? Are you ready? And the therapist would come in the room and the, the psychologist would come in and with their, I call it tilted head syndrome. It's like, stop tilting your head at us. Mm. Stop it. Please stop tilting your head we'll get through this and we'll get through it together. And mum had a photograph next to her bed and it was of me and my beloved brother, Liam, my younger brother. And she said, I don't need pamphlets. I don't need therapists. I don't need anything. I'm just going to fight for my kids. (laughs) You know, and she said, I'm just going to fight and I won't stop fighting. And she didn't. Mm. She never stopped fighting. Oh, my word. And ironically, when I started my time capsule, I thought it was going to be a comedy podcast. But actually, sometimes it really is. Here's the brilliant stand-up comedian, Sean Walsh, from episode 76, talking about a trip to Glastonbury. Glastonbury is the time that I've laughed the most in my life. And I don't mean, <laughs> I don't mean sort of over the weekend, I, I mean on one, one particular point where I really thought I'm struggling to breathe here, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to die. I'm going to die of laughter. This is what a way to go. <laughs> Comic dies of laughter. And, it's, you know, I've bigged it up now, but I'm not saying this is the funniest thing that's ever happened. I'm saying in the moment, I found this the funniest thing that had ever happened. It was the day that we're driving back from Glastonbury and we're very giddy. We're very giddy. You know, have you ever had those, you know, when you're that, 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 that bit in a hangover when you're, you think you've gotten away with it and you're in a really good mood, but actually realise, oh, no, I'm still drunk. <laughs> yes. yes. We're sort of there. Probably shouldn't have been driving mm. in hindsight. But and we're very cloudy. Had a big, big weekend. And on the way back, as we did the year before, we go to a McDonald's drive-thru. And with the McDonald's drive-thru, you pull up to a sort of speaker uh, where someone mm. talks to you through the, you know, through the speaker and you make your order. And then you drive forward. You collect your order. I think you drive forward again, possibly, and you pay. I think it might be that. I think those are the stages. I can't, I can't remember. But you certainly make the order and then go and pick up your food. Mm. And my friend... <laughs> <laughs> Can you imagine the, the state that he would have been in to do this? Is he he ordered? He ordered, <laughs> he, he ordered the McDonald's. <laughs> he, he drove off. <laughs> <laughs> oh my word! Neither of us, neither of us realised. Oh my word! Oh, oh my god! So, 
Oh, dear. <laughs> and it's the most I've ever laughed, the most he's ever laughed. Tears, pain. I think he genuinely, you know, because I nearly crashed the car. I think he did nearly crash the car. We, it was hysteric. It was hysteria. We, we, oh, um, brilliant. And then confronted by a completely stony-faced <laughs> girl we had at the to go, Yeah, we had to go back. <laughs> and he had to walk in. I get it. Um, oh, no. And, yeah, so th- so there you go. So peace and love at Glastonbury yeah. and, uh, and, and laughter. Sean Walsh. That makes me cry with laughter every time I hear it. And now one of our great comic actors. Although here he's talking about the other string to his bow, directing, which apparently he's very good at. From episode 130, here's Richard Wilson. What sort of director are you? I've never worked with you as a director. Uh, I'm a very good director. Very good director. Of course. That's a good way of describing it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Obviously. But I mean, some directors are very organised in as much as they know exactly what they want to put on before they even start rehearsing. So I, are you one of I those? I have no or idea. I have you? no idea. No. The actors do everything. Uh, and that's, you know, that's what I think it should be. So that when I'm interviewing actors and I ask them to read for me, mm. I say, when you read for me, I don't want you to act. I just want you to say the lines and I'll just get an idea of what you sound like. Mm. So my idea then was that I would direct a play and then I'd act in a play. And I just, in those days, you could keep it divided. <laughs> you couldn't do it now. And so that was how it went. And you think to yourself, well, this is quite a nice life. I enjoy directing. I enjoy acting. I'll yeah. do this, and then I'll do the other one. And occasionally I'll direct myself. I, I would never direct myself uh, in a play. Right. I came to that decision, and I kept it. I never directed myself. Mm. <laughs> I, don't understand, I don't understand directors who do. I could never do it. So do you enjoy giving yourself over to a director, then, when you're being directed? Yes. It doesn't worry me at all. I mean, I have once where a director said, could you advise me on this? I said, no, no, I'm I'm in it. But I I love doing it. And and then I started this idea that we would all sit down with the play for a long time Mm -hmm. and we'd talk about it and we'd... I remember the first time I met uh, Alan Rickman I didn't know him then, uh, and the, the first time I asked him, I, I, you know, I said the usual thing, I, I don't want any act, I just want to open and just want to hear you say the lines. And I knew within five seconds I was going to employ him. He was mm. just wonderful and so open. The word I used a lot in directing was openness. I wanted people to not to act and just to do it and to be involved about who they thought they were. So Alan was in the first play I directed in London at the Bush, as it was then, by Dusty Hughes. And he was just, he was wonderful. The brilliant Richard Wilson. Okay, we've just about come to the end of the best of My Time Capsule 2021. You can hear everyone you've heard on this episode and many more if you subscribe to this on Acast or your own favourite podcast provider. Or you can follow us on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. The theme tune was written by Pastor Pease Music and it was a cast-off production. The producer was John Fenton Stevens. We'll leave you with some little extracts from probably our most successful episodes. Yep, episodes. There were two of them. This is the great Barry Cryer, who chatted so much to me in the pub that we had to make it into two episodes. Anyway, here's a quick burst of his genius. Irish joke, stereotype. Irishman goes for a job at a blacksmith. And the blacksmith says, have you ever shooed a horse? And the Irishman said, no, but I once told a pig to fuck off. (laughs) A retired cop used to come in here called Dick Manley. Isn't that wonderful? Mm. The joke was in the phone book, he's Manly Dick. (laughs) Bernard Matthews turkeys. It looked all right in print. The man's voice. Bernard Matthews turkeys, Norfolk and good. (laughs) Never noticed that. (laughs) <laughs> Stop the world I want to get off. What kind of fool am I at the yes. song? 
and we did Hamlet. I played Hamlet and Danny the Roo was a <laughs> And I was saying, what kind of fool am I stuck here in Elsinore to be or not to be but I can't see what I'm living for. I'm just a mixed up kid, a gloomy Dane. No wonder that Ophelia's going down the track. <laughs> they say the world's a stage. I must admit that right. But she can't see with me. There'll never be an opening night. <laughs> I seem to fall in love with every other man. It's very plain to me. Oh, God. <laughs> oh that's brilliant. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 